God is God and you are not. Ooh, that's not looking good. We'll have to fix that later. Um, This refrain was something we heard again and again last week in Romans 9, that towering chapter of the sovereignty of God, that God is the one who not only makes salvation possible, but actually chooses, according to his sovereign desires, those who are saved. Now remember, that was chapter 9. Paul spent the opening chapters unfolding the great and grand gospel, how great and grand the gospel is. He opens up the book with the the grand statement about the gospel that we read before from Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. The gospel is the power of God for, the salvation, for salvation to everyone who believes. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, right after that gospel statement, he opens up with the massive problem of humanity. Every single person is in deep rebellion against God. It is a profound heart problem, and the sin, this sin problem messes up our personal lives, messes up our relationships with each other, messes up our relationship with God, and messes up our world. It's a big mess. And in our own power, we are helpless to make any changes. Then in Romans 3.21, Paul says this little word, but, a little but profound word. Because along with it comes the great news that God has done something to help us in our helplessness. He has sent His Son Jesus, the sacrificial substitute, dying in our place so that we can be reconciled back to God and back to each other. And the great news is explained further in that we receive this by trusting Jesus, not by good works. God gives us the assurance of this in chapter 5. Sorry, excuse me. Uh, every, every other person I've spoken to has uh, come down with the sniffles. So, God has given us assurance that we are saved in, uh, in chapter 5. He encourages us to live for Him in chapter 6. He shows us the powerlessness of trying to live by the law in chapter 7. And then He lays out God's awesome love and care for His people in chapter 8. You are loved profoundly loved by God. And you can know this, and the proof of this is in Jesus, His death, His resurrection, and His presence with you by the Holy Spirit. For people like us, Gentiles, this is epically good news. Now remember the context of the church in Rome that Paul is writing to. It's a divided church. For various reasons, there is a division in this church between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And so the great news, this great news that the Gentiles get to rejoice in, well, it's probably raising now a question or two at the same time. See, the biggest question after we've read chapters 1 to 8 is probably this. If these promises from God are so epically good and God gives us assurance of this in His Word, then can we really trust Him? God gave similar epic, wonderful assurances to His people Israel, but they seem to be missing out on the blessings. So how can I, a Gentile, know for certain that I won't miss out like they are missing out? 
So here is where we are, Romans 9 to 11. Uh, it's, a, it's a long, detailed answer to that question, and it's a, an important one. Because at the heart of these chapters is the trustworthiness of God. And that is no small matter, because if I, if I cannot trust God's word, well then what, all that we're doing here, all that we believe is for nothing. The three answers to that problem are in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And you can put it simply like this. Chapter 9, the the first answer to the question of, can I trust God? Uh, Chapter 9's answer is that God is sovereign. He chooses who to show mercy to. It's His prerogative. We don't deserve salvation, so we cannot cry that it is unfair. God is God, and you are not. Chapter 10, he says that Israel is also responsible for rejecting the message. And in chapter 11, he says, God is not yet finished with Israel. He's got other plans for her. First, dive into the passage. We begin with a question in chapter 9, verse 30, signaling that Paul is moving his train of thought on from chapter 9 and into this section. What shall we say then? Now, in answer to that question in verse 30, he, basically, he says something amazing. Basically, Gentiles who weren't looking for it have been given righteousness from God. Righteousness is right standing, being able to stand before God in right relationship with Him, to be innocent of any wrongdoing. And the key, though, is in contrast between Gentiles in verse 30 and Jews in verse 31. See, the contrast, there's a contrast of righteousness here. See, the Jews, they were looking for righteousness, but they didn't receive it at all. They were pursuing the law of the Old Testament, keeping all of its commands. And while that should have led to righteousness, they didn't receive it. Why? For Paul, it's an issue of how they were looking. Have a look again at verse 32. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. You see, the Gentiles receive righteousness that is by faith. Faith. But the Jews did not because they did not pursue it by faith. You see the words there in the middle of verse 32, but as if, uh, shows that they got it wrong. Uh, one of the great fears of all the students, or any student, you will know, is the fear that you go into an exam and you read the question wrong. Because if you read the question wrong, if you start on the wrong foot, you answer it in the wrong way. But this is more than just reading it wrong. You see the quote there in verse 33 and the rest of chapter 10. They all point out that not only did the Jews get it wrong, but they did so out of willful disobedience. Look at the quote in verse 33. It's from Isaiah 28. Very simply, Isaiah was bringing down, the the, the backstory, Isaiah was bringing down a judgment on Israel's leaders for not bowing down to God as their king. So in God's judgment of them, he was going to lay down a stone representing this Davidic king. He was going to administer justice and destroy all evildoers. And so the only thing to do, the only thing that made sense to do was to bow down before this king. Turns out this king is Jesus and the Jews were not bowing down to him. So the stone that God laid down was one which they stumbled over. Anyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. See, at the end of time, when Jesus returns, all those who trust in him will not experience shame for their faith. They will be vindicated. But those who reject him, 
who stumble on this rock of offense will experience eternal shame for rejecting Jesus. When we open up chapter 10, Paul moves back into a deeply personal tone, picking up the intense grief he began with in in chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He is moved to pray intensely for his fellow Jews. He yearns for them to see Jesus properly. Verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. See, Paul sees that they have zeal, they are passionate, they are enthusiastic about their beliefs. But passion means nothing if you're passionate about the wrong thing, if you're passionately ignorant. He says in verse 2 there, they have zeal, but not according to knowledge. Knowledge here is not just about beliefs, but about the head and the heart, understanding the gospel, receiving the gospel, loving the gospel, and living out the gospel. That's what the word knowledge there implies. They have zeal, but it's completely misplaced. Just because you're passionate about something doesn't mean you're right. Deanne Carson is a passionate advocate for those who have been sexually assaulted. She's an educator and speaker. I'm not familiar with all her work, but I have read a little of it, and I don't doubt for a second that she's an intelligent woman, passionate about a good cause. But during the week, she showed passion without knowledge. In an interview with the ABC about teaching children consent, she argued that parents should ask their newborn babies for consent to change their nappies. I kid you not, she said, you should, as you're changing the nappy, you should ask your child, is it okay for me to change your nappy? And then wait for a response. <laughs> now, I want to be clear again that I'm not disparaging her work in general, okay? But on this particular point, I think she has spoken passionately without knowledge. Because any parent of a toddler will tell you that you cannot ask them for consent to change their nappy because they will always say no. That is Ellie's favorite word right now. (laughs) The Jews, they've got passion as well. But it's ultimately pointless. In verse 3, Paul makes the point that their passion is useless because they do not understand that righteousness is received by faith. They're seeking to gain righteousness by their obedience to the law and by their own effort. And in doing so, they do not submit to God. Now think about that. Their obedience is actually disobedience because their obedience does not come out of faith. It is not rooted in faith. It does not spring up and grow and flourish out of the good soil of faith. And because of this, they also did not see that Jesus was the end point of the law. In verse 4, Paul says that Jesus is the fulfillment, the goal, the destination The law was meant to drive them into his arms, but instead they rejected him. If they were following the law, if they were following the law not by works, but if they were following the law by faith, 
then they would have seen Jesus as the promised fulfillment of it all. So here's where we've been so far. Gentiles who weren't looking for it have received righteousness by faith. But Jews who were looking for it in the law didn't receive it. Why? Because they ignorantly and passionately pursued the law as if it was all by their good works. Their obedience in this way is actually disobedience and they ended up stumbling over the stone that God has laid down. They missed seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and so they are lost. Now, as we move into point two, chapter 10, verses 5 to 13, Paul goes on a a bit of a long explanation of verse 4, right? That Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and you'll see this by faith. He kicks off in verse 5 with a quote from the Old Testament book, that everybody loves, Leviticus. There Moses says that righteousness comes from doing the commands and living by them. Now, this sounds almost like what the Jews were doing, right? You could almost see them or almost hear them saying, see, Moses is telling us that you must obey the law in order to have life, in order to be in relationship with God. It it sounds like Moses is saying that righteousness, righteousness comes from obeying the law. Well, firstly, Paul has already cut the legs out from under that argument way back in chapters 1 to 3. Right? There he proved that nobody can do it. No one can actually fulfill the law and perfectly obey the law. Right? B- both Jews and Gentiles are guilty of sinning against God. You can't do it. If, you, if you're going to do it by works, you can't do it. Which is in some ways how he is, you should have read the law in Leviticus as well. See, there's a bit of a complex argument here in verses 5 to 8. He quotes from Deuteronomy to clarify what Leviticus should, how, how Leviticus should have been read. Now, there's a strange thing about ascending into heaven to collect Jesus and descending into the grave to bring Jesus back from the dead. I think this is another way of saying that you don't have to have a superhero level of spirituality, of maturity of faith. Right? It takes all, you know, to go into heaven to pull Jesus down and to bring him up from the grave. That takes a kind of superhuman uh, spiritual person to do that. Right? All of this to say one thing the law is not difficult to keep if you realize that it's not about your performance, but about trusting God at his word. To understand the law doesn't require a master's in theology. You don't need to be a priest. You don't need to be a super spiritual person. Why? Have a look at verse 8. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, and that word is the word of faith or trust. So Paul is saying, you can keep the law, you can fulfill it, if you begin and end with trusting God and His promises. Now, just before I just said, you cannot fulfill the law if it's by works. But Paul is saying here, you can fulfill the law if you begin with trust and end with trust. Some of you might be thinking, wait, you're saying it's possible to keep and fulfill the law? Let me illustrate it this way. Go back in time for a moment. Think of the time of the temple sacrifices. Imagine you're a faithful Jew. Uh, You're standing there at the temple entrance with your son 
Let's call him Jaden. Uh, you know that there are many sacrifices for sin. You know the law pretty well. You've, you've offered some of these sacrifices yourself. But today, standing there with Jaden, with a whole bunch of people, is the Day of Atonement. It is the big moment in Leviticus 16, right? It's the moment where this one sin, this one, sorry, one sacrifice in particular, will forgive everyone's sin for the year. You know that moment. There are two goats that are being presented. One is going to be sacrificed. Its blood is going to be sprinkled inside the Holy of Holies and on the Ark of the Covenant, that box that contained the Ten Commandments, which represented God's physical presence inside the Holy of Holies. It was atoning in that way. Right? And the second goat was prayed over and then led off into the wilderness, kind of symbolically carrying off the sins of the nations on his shoulders, led off into the wilderness. Now imagine standing there as you're watching all of this happen, and Jaden tugs at you, and he says, Daddy, or Mummy, is that goat really taking away our sins? What would you say? Now the answer to that depends on how you look at the law. See, if you followed the law as if it were based on works, then you would say, yes, we did everything by the law. The goat was the proper age according to the law. It had no imperfections according to the law. The priest washed correctly according to the law. We did it perfectly. Our sins are forgiven. But if you followed the law by faith, then you would have to answer differently. Jaden, I honestly don't know, but God told us that this is what we need to do. And he promises us forgiveness if we do it. He's been good to us, so we're going to trust his word on this. You see, when you look at the law that way, it's not hard to do. You fulfill it as best you can all the while trusting God and his promises And if you do that, you'll see God's promises fulfilled in Jesus. Then you'll be righteous, not by your good works, not by keeping it perfectly, but by your faith. Still don't believe me? All right. Think about Simeon. Not that Simeon. This Simeon. All right. Turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 2. Keep your fingers in Romans 10. Turn me to Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he, could not see, he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He had, he had came, and he came in the Spirit into the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, 
Israel. See, here is a man, a faithful Jew, who is described in verse 25 as righteous. Why is he righteous? We're told that he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's trusting God to reveal his plans. And you can only do that if you view the law by faith, not as if it was by works. And what did he finally get to see? What did he see that finally gave him peace? He saw Jesus, God's salvation, a light for the Gentiles and for glory to the people of Israel. He saw the end goal of the law, what the law and the prophets all pointed to, what you could only eventually see by trusting God and his promises. See, when you confess with your mouth that God is a promise keeper who saves, and you believe in your heart that God will save you, then what happens is you stand before God justified, declared righteous, in right standing with God. You come back to Romans 10, and that's Paul's point. Moses and the prophets, because he quotes from Isaiah and Joel, they are saying the same thing. The law says, even within itself, that obedience is not done just by your own effort to puff yourself up. It's done in humble trust, in faith, that God keeps his promises. And ultimately, if you believe in a promise-keeping God, you must believe in Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And if you believe in this in your heart and confess this with your mouth, then you will be saved. There will be no eternal shame, no judgment, no condemnation. The Jews just don't get this. They fundamentally misunderstand the law. They start on the wrong foot and they end up going down the wrong path. So has anyone told them? Has anyone gone to them and told them, you guys are wrong? This is how you should be reading it? I guess now is a good time for me to confess something. I've got a pretty bad habit that I need to confess Whenever anything good happens, especially when it comes to a couple dating, a new couple dating in church, I often forget to tell my wife, Steph. Then three months later, you know, we might be at morning tea and Steph notices this couple and she quietly nudges me going, what's going on with that couple, eh? And I say, what do you mean? They've been dating for three months. She says, what? You never told me. Yes, Sorry. And that kind of makes sense, right? If there's good news to be heard, someone needs to tell you that good news. In order to tell you, they have to be sent with that news. Same thing with this out-of-the-world good news about Jesus' death and his resurrection for us. And Paul makes this crystal clear in verses 14 to 15. Read with me. This unalterable chain of logic here in verses 14 to 15. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed... And how are they to believe in him whom they have, not heard, they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. When a messenger is sent, when they preach clearly, when, they he- when people hear the gospel and respond with repentance and joy, that is a beautiful thing. But Paul is not giving us here a motivational speech for evangelism. He's saying all this to get to the point in verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? 
Has anyone gone to the Jews and told them they are wrong? Has anyone told them that they were on the wrong path? Yes. And they haven't responded with faith. The Jews did not respond with the obedience of faith in the same way that they didn't respond to Isaiah when he was sent by God to preach to them. And Paul makes this abundantly clear in the final verses. In verses 18 to 21, he strings together a quote from Psalm 19, from Deuteronomy 32 and Isaiah 65. And verse 18, he says, Have they heard? Yes, they have. The gospel has gone out. Right? So they cannot say that they, have had, they haven't had the opportunity to hear. Verse 19, God intends to make them jealous. Right? Paul will expand more on this in Romans 11. But basically his attention is now on the Gentiles and he's going to make Israel jealous and eventually turn to Jesus as well. Verse 20, the faith of the Gentiles was prophesied by Isaiah. And verse 21 caps it all off by showing that Israel has consistently been disobedient in response to God's messengers. And the main point in this last section is that Israel is clearly responsible for her own actions. The Jews have rejected Jesus. They're not innocent. Messenger after messenger has been sent to them, but they have failed to respond rightly. And that failure is on them. So let me summarize what we've seen so far before we move on to application. Remember that the question driving chapters 9 to 11 is whether God's word and promises are trustworthy. If God's Old Testament people, the Jews, have mostly failed to receive the righteousness from God, then has God's promises failed them? And if it's failed them, could it also fail us? Romans 9 said, no, not all who are Israel are truly God's chosen people. Those God has elected and has sovereignly poured out his mercy upon, they are saved. And Romans 10 also says, no. First, the Jews themselves are at fault. They are responsible for responding to the gospel message and they have chosen to reject it. And second, their rejection of the gospel is also a fulfillment of God's word. God's word has not failed. He has kept his promises and his people have done what God has already said that they would do. Now, oddly enough, this positively shows that God's word has not failed. It has come true and it is trustworthy. Now, that certainly raises a big question. What will God do with Israel then? Are they forever doomed? And the answer to that is also no. And Paul will expand on that in Romans 11. For now, what should we do when it, with this, when it comes to this chapter? I think there are three applications, and the first is to do with the head, the second is to do with the heart, and the third has to do with our hands and our actions. First one, I think we need, the first one is that we need to get right this tension between God's sovereignty on one hand and human responsibility on the other. It's not either or, it's both and. If you've ever studied church history, you'll notice that most of the errors in false teaching in the church comes about usually because someone is trying to work out a simpler way of understanding something relatively complex or difficult in the Bible. And when it comes to the sovereignty of God and human responsibility, I think Christians throughout church history have had a tendency to emphasize one over the other. In in trying to grapple with it, they've gone with one, as a priority over the other. So Christians who emphasize God's sovereignty end up with this kind of cold, dispassionate worship of God. There's no fire, there's no joy, there's only a cold, unbiblical fatalism. 
right? fatalism. Life, things in life are inevitable. They are God's. Uh, God. They are as God wills. What can we do? Nothing. Can we care? Not really. It's really cold, bleak, and depressing. Overemphasizing God's sovereignty has sometimes led to a lack of evangelism. If God chooses people to to save, then He will do it. Right? These sorts of Christians have often been labelled the frozen chosen. Right? Their approach to evangelism is to keep their hands in their pockets and do nothing. Because we know that this should not be. Sometimes over, uh, overemphasizing God's sovereignty has led to the unbiblical thinking of once saved, always saved, as a matter of fact, on its own. The idea that if you say the sinner's prayer, maybe get baptized, then it doesn't matter what happens after that. Some even go further. My, my mother-in-law told me of being on a flight and sitting next to a pastor who told her that even if your children believed, if your children believed in Jesus and were baptized, even if they fall away and turn away from Jesus, they are still saved. Once saved, always saved. And you can hear in that a complete lack of understanding about the responsibility Christians have in their holiness, in their sanctification and persevering to the end. On the other end, we have Christians who often overemphasize human responsibility. Now, this can lead to thinking more highly of humanity than we should. <laughs> thinking that we have complete free will, that responding to God is completely 100% your choice alone. Salvation is totally dependent on you. And in this line of thinking can also dishonor God. It puts him in a box of giving us the gospel, but being powerless or unwilling to help. He has no power or desire to compel a change. He is unwilling or unable to help us maintain our faith. See, what we need to do is we need to recover this tension that God's word seems to hold us before us to equal and seemingly opposite truths. God is sovereign and he will choose those who will be saved. And man is responsible for responding to the gospel. So we must preach it to others. There's no way to resolve that neatly. What we need to do is humbly believe both and hold them together. And if we have the tension right, then it will lead to faithful preaching of the gospel. We will call people to respond because we will be placing a real choice before people that they have the real responsibility to respond to. And when we do that, it will lead to faithful and earnest prayer, just like Paul did for his fellow Jews. We will pray earnestly that the God who can change hearts will change the hearts of our hearers, our family members, our brothers, our sisters, our mums, our dads, our neighbour. God can change those hearts, take out the old and give it a new one that will beat with faith. So we will pray that he does as we keep preaching. And as we keep preaching, trusting our sovereign God, it will lead to fruitful evangelism. Believing in predestination does not and should not lead to a lack of evangelism. The exact opposite. Because we believe that God has chosen some, we know that they will respond with faith. And so that frees us to preach to whoever, wherever, whenever. We know people will be saved, not by our efforts alone, but also because in God's sovereign grace, he will make it so. Be faithful to the tension of Scripture here, and we will be faithful in preaching, faithful in praying, and faithful in evangelism. Application number two. The Jews had zeal but no knowledge. They were passionate 
but we're passionately wrong. This encourages us to test our hearts, ask if we have the wrong zeal. Often our zeal is tied with our confidence, so we've put our confidence, have we put our confidence in the wrong thing? And maybe we're putting our confidence in how good we are at obeying the rules and using that, using our obedience as a gauge for our rightness with God. So when you're going well, we feel good. There's passion in our faith, but when we fail, when we stumble into sin, there's despair. Our passion is gone. We're left with just feelings of regret and guilt. Maybe we put our hope in camps and retreats and conferences to give us a spiritual lift, that feeling of being closer to God in those times. Same thing happens for those who feel closer to God during worship in church. Singing draws uh, to God, draws them closer to God rather than trusting Jesus alone. The truth is you are never more closer to God than in what Jesus has done for you. Like camps, music, even joyful obedience, they are good things. But what brings us closer to God, what brings us into his presence is not those things, it's Jesus. Trusting Jesus alone is what should fuel our passion and our zeal. If we're relying on anything else to fuel our passion, you might be in danger of having a zeal that lacks knowledge. Third and final application, preach the gospel. Have you ever seen this quote? Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. It's often wrongly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. He never actually said anything like that. Uh, Years ago, one of the guys of of this church, he was visiting for the first time. Uh, When he was visiting for the first time, he actually got invited to an evangelism course in the afternoon that I was running. He had told the friend that he was, who invited him that he believed evangelism was about living a good life and through your good life you attract people to church and to Jesus. Have you ever heard that before? According to Romans 10, both of those ways of thinking about evangelism are wrong. The gospel needs words. You can't preach about the death and resurrection of Jesus in how you wash your car, in how you get your good marks, in how you furnish your house. The death and resurrection of Jesus requires words. Paul reminds us that people must be sent to preach the gospel so that people might hear it and respond. We are being disobedient to God's word if we excuse ourselves from either preaching the gospel or sending others. So practically, that means getting involved. Getting involved with finding out about the missionaries that we support, getting involved in local evangelism, getting involved in something like City Bible Forum, uh, which reaches out to uh, workers in the city with the gospel. Getting involved with campus groups, high school groups, to encourage others to hear about Jesus. It means that we give generously to missions, give generously to the work of evangelism, that our funds, our money is not our own. It means we pray earnestly and that we be willing and joyful in praying earnestly for the conversion of others. Romans 10 is setting before us a big bar. Don't misunderstand the gospel and miss out. Be sent to preach the gospel and keep on preaching it. 
and do all of these things trusting God. Let me pray. Father in heaven, the righteous shall live by faith. We will look at all that you've done and trust you on your promises. We thank you that you fulfill your word and show yourself trustworthy. We pray then that you would help us to be faithful. Be faithful in understanding all of who you are and faithful in proclaiming your message till the day we die. Father, please be at work in us to speak the gospel clearly and boldly, to partner with those who are able to do that and to keep doing so for your glory and the building up of your kingdom. What we have is great news. Father, help us never sit on it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.